Attention musicians of all levels. It's not always easy picking out a song by ear. Sometimes you need a little help. Well, I have the app for you. Whether you're a professional musician or a beginner, Ultimate Guitar is an amazing app. For just $2.99, you get the chords and tabs on guitar, bass, or ukulele for over a million songs. They're all available at your fingertips. You also get tools like a tuner, metronome, chord library, lessons, videos, and more. You can find out any song you want. It also has like transpose button. It has auto scroll that you can change the speed to so you can play along with the song. A lot of the songs have the lyrics there so you can sing along with them. Ultimate Guitar is an amazing app. Just go to ultimateguitar.com or download the app to your phone today and start playing. Start playing any song you want. Ultimate Guitar, that's the place for you. Let's get down. Hey gang, I want to make a quick announcement. Since we started this podcast in 2011, only the last 20 episodes have been available on the streaming services. You had to go back to the Podbean app or to the website, howdidigethere.podbean.com to access past the 20, last 20 episodes. Well, gang, big surprise. As of now, the last 100 episodes are available on all streaming sites. That includes the From the Vault episodes. All of the episodes, the last 100 episodes from this episode back are available now on all streaming services, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast. Go there. It, whichever one you're subscribed to, whichever one you use the most, go subscribe to How Did I Get Here. Follow us, rate us, leave us a comment if you can, and, uh, and check out the episodes, man. Get out there and enjoy the last 100 episodes of How Did I Get Here on your favorite streaming services. Let's get down. You gotta open the vault. Open my vault? Open your vault. <laughs> Once I open the vault, it ceases to be a vault. You have no choice. I the vault. Johnny, I'm your host. Welcome to another episode of How Did I Get Here from the Vault, where we reach back into our vault of well over a thousand episodes, pull one out, shine it up, and re-release it just in case you missed it or in case you want to hear it again. Today, we're going back to episode 969 that came out on September 11th, 2020 with legendary keyboard player Bobby Sparks. Now, you know, you might know Bobby from his work with Snarky Puppy, Marcus Miller, Tower of Power, St. Vincent. Um, amazing keyboard player, amazing keyboard player. Now, uh, this conversation was done in person. It was done at 1230 at night <laughs> backstage after a show. Now you're like, wait a minute back in 2020. Yeah. Let me give you a little backstory about this, this, this particular conversation, because it was a little strange, uh, but it, it was really exciting and really fun and took place on a really great night. So back in uh, probably August of 2020, uh, my friend James Robinson reached out for me and he reached out to me and he, he told me he was doing a show uh, at this place called the Amani Room in Smithville. And uh, it was going to be one of those half capacity of the place shows or, or, you know, less than a third of capacity, whatever it was. And uh, and he was going to have all this different music and this legendary keyboard player, Bobby Sparks, was going to play. And I didn't know who Bobby Sparks was. He filled me in on Bobby's stuff. And he was like, I really want you to interview Bobby. And I was like, oh, I want to. And then he was like, well, I also really want you to host this show because Brandon Temple, uh, the Temple Underground was playing. Um, 
and and James Robinson was playing and Bobby Sparks was going to play and it was going to be a whole night of music with like dancing and all this kind of all this kind of amazing stuff that we didn't get to do at that time. And when I say dancing, people were seated and they had to stay in their place. But there were uh, 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 Chandra Robinson came out and did all of this like movement and and amazing physical movement stuff to all the music. It was all just a really magical night. So anyway, after some thought of it, I, I, I did I did really think about it because I was like, man, I don't know. I haven't gotten COVID yet. I don't know if I want to go host this thing, but it was safe. People were wearing masks. Uh, the musicians weren't when they were on stage. I wasn't when I was uh, when I was announcing the people and I didn't wear one when Bobby and I spoke at the end of the night backstage. All right. So I went and I hosted this event and it ended up being this night of just magical improvisational music that went on for hours. Like uh, uh, the Temple Underground was doing that. Uh, James Robinson was doing that, even though he was doing a couple of songs that he had actually written and people had learned and stuff. And then Bobby Sparks got up there and they just kind of flew by the seat of their pants. And it was just so magical and uplifting and exciting, especially after being in my apartment for so many months at that point. Um, uh, then, then I got to go back and sit down with Bobby in the back. He didn't, he didn't hold his mic very close to his mouth, but you still hear him. He's doing good in the, he's, you know, in the podcast. But, uh, at the end of the night, we sat down while people were loading out and me and Bobby sat down on a couch and had this conversation. You can see a picture of it on our Instagram. I'm at Johnny Gowdy on Instagram uh, at Johnny Gowdy on Twitter. And we are, how did I get here on, uh, on Facebook? All right. Great conversation with Bobby Sparks. We had a really great conversation. I got to watch him play his clavinet and and use his whammy bar on his clavinet that night, and it blew my mind. It was so cool. We also talked about all kinds of stuff. You know, he we talked about it making improvisational music and being in the moment making music. Uh, how he got started playing keyboards when he was three years old in uh, in Corsicana. How multi generational homes are something that just people don't really do anymore, like they did when he was growing up, or like I, you know. Like when I was growing up, sometimes your grandma lives with you. Like my aunt lives with my grandma and all that stuff. We talk about all the amazing people he's gotten to play with. He tells me the story of his of his role in Snarky Puppy. And we talk about the magic of the Yamaha DX7 keyboard, which, which we both love. And uh, we have a lot of nice things to say about that keyboard. But anyway, I had a great time sitting down with Bobby and talking. And uh, it was a really magical night. And I just kind of wanted to share the story of the night with you. So to give you a little background of where Bobby and I were coming from sitting down having this conversation. So without further ado, uh, from backstage at the Amani, the Amani room in Smithville, Texas, from uh, episode 969, September 11th, 2020. This conversation was actually had on Labor Day 2020. This is me and Bobby Sparks chatting it up. Let's get down. How did I get here from the vault? So that was a transformative show. I got—I just got to watch you play for I don't even know how long. Two and a half hours? Something like Two that. hours? Yeah. How long were you expecting to play tonight? Like maybe an hour or something? Know, usually I just play till someone says, okay, you have five <laughs> minutes. And we just play for, you know, till we get tired, really. Yeah. 
especially when we're playing music that we like. You know, we're having fun. You know, time just, you know, we don't worry about the time. No. We just play till we get tired. Yeah. Yeah, I was feeling you. Uh, I'm, I'm a songwriter and musician myself. I'm also in a cover band. And when you were talking the stuff about Brickhouse, there is something about, you said uh, you were thanking everyone for coming and being part of this communication. Right. That It's a communication. Like, music like this is everybody's being creative and nothing is planned. You know, you're just, it, it's a conversation. And, you know, it's not like a conversation where you're going to walk in a room and be like, you know, I know what you're going to say. You know what I'm going to say. Yeah. That's not fun. You know, so if I know I'm going to play Brick House, or then, okay, I know what I'm, I know. Yeah. So, so for the most part, a lot of times for us, that's boring. Yeah. You know, but coming, but in the situation, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. No, no, no. It's just, you know, sometimes when you when you're walking in a room, with your hands stretched out, you don't know what's going to happen. That's it's a beautiful thing of creating. For me, that's where I think God is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's a cover band is great, and musicians can exercise their skill at mimicking something. Absolutely, and that is that's still a great art, a great craft. Absolutely, but because when because because being in a cover band, because I've done both. Yeah, you know, I've, you know, you you have to play it like the record. Mm-hmm. And that's great, but that's where discipline comes. I think, as a musician, you need both. You need to, you need to be able to be disciplined enough to play the parts that you hear on the record. Right. Play it the way, as a as a keyboard player or a guitar player, you have to get the sound that was on the record, but you're mimicking somebody else. Right. You know, if if that works for you. That's great, but I think you still need to have a creative side where you walk in the room and you don't know what you're going to play. Yeah. Yeah, we all need that. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment of creation is really like the buzz, you know? Right. Absolutely. The real buzz. That's the buzz, yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been doing this, you've been playing since you were, you started playing when you were three? About three or four, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you, what did you start on piano? I actually started on Oregon. My mother is a musician. Right and uh, my aunt um, um, was a musician. They played the same church, and I always had a love for the organ. The organ was a straight was a was a was a the organ was a instrument by itself. It's a whole orchestra, yeah, by itself. So I was gravitated to the organ. Most of the cool guys in the church played the organ. All the women played piano. So. Okay. So I just kind of wanted to be cool as a young kid. So I gravitated to the organ. And uh, so my my mother and, and my aunt was rehearsing for this funeral they were playing for. So And the song was My Way. Yeah. I did it my way. Yeah. So so my aunt got up off the organ, and my mother was just kind of working out her stuff on the piano. So I just got on the organ and just started playing the song with one finger. I was like four years old, and then someone came in the room and said, "Hey, you hear Poppy playing this song?" And she thought I was <laughs> uncle. She thought I was a a grown my, up. My aunt, my yeah. aunt, just trying to work out a part. Yeah. So it became a whole thing. Y'all come and listen to Bob. Little Bobby play this song. Yeah. And so, and then she started playing another song, and I followed her on, and she played another song. My mama, she just started crying. 
Like, oh my God. They took me to church that Sunday. They had me up. And I played from the church. Went to drive to play. So I went from one playing one finger to two fingers to. Now you're using all 10. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. When, uh, like, what. Who are who are who are the guys that you look up to? I look up to everybody. Uh, yeah. From early on, I'm a church boy, so I'm a church boy. So when I grew up, um, it was a guy in Corsica. I'm from Corsica, Texas. So that was a young guy that used to come and pick me up every Saturday. I'd hang with him Saturday and Sunday. He was like 17 at the time, 16. And I was like six. His name was Paul Lewis. And and Paul would come give we go to the church. He'd show me all the modern gospel songs. So he became my idol. The city loved him. And you know, still to this day he's bad. He's still bad. And and then he taught me other guys, you know, in the Dallas area by who was you know, there was Burt Cross, there's Willie Stewart, um, Arthur Dyer, uh, Robbie Baxter. They was, those are the guys that were, you know, it was, and a lot of other guys too. So they became my idols because that's who he idolized. So then every time I would go to church conventions and stuff, I would just watch these guys play. You know, like Burt Cross. You know, these, these guys were, became my heroes. Then I became a teenager and I started meeting these guys. And then during this this whole time, I I was playing for a gospel group called Vision. They were like a commission copy, which Fred Hammond was. Fred Hammond was a part of that group. So that was the 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 um, the uh, keyboard player and the producer of the group was named Michael Brooks. I went to see that group in like maybe eighty seven, eighty eight. Blew my mind. He was playing five, six keyboards at one time, and had a Hammond B3 organ, DX7, DX. I mean, a, D, a Yamaha DX7. He had a Roland D50, Korg M1, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then, you know, from there, I got on Herbie Hancock, McCoy Tyner, as you know, in my mid-teens, and then just kind of opened up. I just got turned on to different musicians. Herbie Hancock and uh, Chick Corea, and and then, uh, then I started studying jazz. Got into Bud Powell and all of those greats, you know, Art Tatum, really Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, for yeah. me. And then, uh, you know, they started looking at Jimi Hendrix videos. As a kid, my my dad always played. Uh, Albert King and yeah, BB King, Bobby Bland, and so Albert Albert Collins was really big. My dad yeah. loved Albert Collins, so I grew up on the blues, you know. And as well, my dad, when I was a kid, he was while my mother was teaching me hymns. My dad's a trumpet was a trumpet player. He died in 2011. He was a trumpet player, but he loved bebop. Dizzy Gillespie was his favorite. Musician, yeah, and he loved bebop, so he always pushed Dizzy Gillespie on me, Count Basie. Uh, he 
Duke Ellington, all that stuff, Miles Davis. So when I got into college, you know, I was kind of ahead of everybody else because I, I was already knew what was going on. Right, yeah. Musically. Yeah. What was, I wrote that down, uh, Eastfield College? Eastfield College. In Mesquite, Texas. Mesquite, Texas, yes. My uh, instructor was uh, Kurt Bradshaw. Okay. Kurt Bradshaw changed my life. And the piano teacher there was, his name is Gary Freeman, who lives in Tyler, Texas now. Uh, Gary was, Gary really, Gary really changed my life because I had never heard nobody play like that in real life. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it was like, he was the first person I saw that was playing jazz like that, playing classical music. I mean, he he blew my mind. And during that same, well, and then a little bit before that, I met Bernard Wright. Bernard Wright was very important. Bernard Wright was a, he, he grew up with Marcus Miller. He grew up with Lenny White. And uh, he's a, He's a great, he did records, a child prodigy. Um, uh, can't think of. Is, is that how you ended up playing with Marcus? Yeah, through him? Bernard would always tell him, tell, would tell Marcus about me. Uh, Bernard, yes. yeah. And then, uh, but I met Marcus years, years ago when I was playing with Kirk Franklin. But we never he never never knew about me playing, you know. He just probably looked at me as a gospel musician. But right. I'm sure Bernard was like, No nah, man, if you want me, you gotta play you know, he's the next he he's the only guy that, that can do what I can do. Right, he, right. That's what Mark, what he was telling Marcus. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then you, you how 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 much did you play with Marcus? Did you play on records and stuff and I played on two records. Two records? Maybe. Yeah, I saw a great live thing from a jazz festival. There's like a, a montage of you playing with different people at jazz festivals okay, on yeah. YouTube. Oh, really? That is awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I played with Tower Power too. I've, yeah, I've, you played with Tower Power and also uh, Roy Hargrove yeah. on that too. Yeah, yeah. Roy, the the uh, R H Factor was created in my house. You know, I was uh, started my record around 1997, 98. Schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. So the song Take It and a couple of other songs I had done. So Roy was over my house. He was like, hey, man. I let him hear, you know, some of that stuff. He's like, hey, man, I want to do something like this. He said, I said, man, well, let's do it. And so, uh, you know, Ragman, his manager, called me and said, hey, man, can we record everything at your house? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So we recorded. I brought in an engineer, assistant, and we recorded a, a demo of that record. Record company heard it. They were like, okay, yeah, we'll give you a budget. Y'all come up to New York. We'll, we'll record everything at Electric Lady. Wow. That was 2000 and 2001. Was that, was that like when, when Questlove had it locked out? Well, that was a little bit after that. Okay. I mean, because... Quest Love was supposed to have been there, but he never showed up. Oh, okay. Reason. All right. I, you know, I don't know why, but he never showed up. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Sparks. <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about Kirk Franklin, because that's the one guy I really didn't know. 
Kirk Franklin was a gospel artist. He's um, played with he, him for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I played man. with him for 20 years. Um, around in, during that period and when I was in high school, I was playing around in groups, gospel groups at musicals and things. And Kirk was a choir director. He did workshops. So a lot of time he would call me and be like, hey, man, I need, can you come play for my workshop? I can, I'll pay you, pay you some money. And then um, he had this group that he was working with, and um, he was going to record this record. And these these producers, uh, George Klinscale, Arthur Dyer, and and George Klinscale, they called me to play on the record, the Why We Sing record. That was the first record, Kirk Franklin and the Family. So we recorded the record. Me and the band, we. We were just <clears throat> we didn't plan on touring or anything like that. But after we recorded the record, you know, we just went back doing what we was doing, playing around town and one night Kirk came in this club we were all playing at, the full band. He came in with his uh his his son's mother. He was like, Hey man, we didn't know you played jazz and stuff I'm like, yeah, that's how yeah. yeah, he's like, hey man, the record, you know, the record is coming out. This is like a year later. The record's fixing to come out. He said, man, it'd be cool to have the same band on the road. And we were like, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, so that's kind of how the Kirk Franklin thing started. And we, you know, and I, I did that for 20 years. That's amazing. Was your, was your main instrument in that organ? No, actually, no? Uh, I played piano parts. Uh, Guy named Jerome Harmon played the organ parts. Okay, I kind of switched over to organ because uh, it seemed like people were putting putting me in a box. Okay, you know, so every time I played the organ, they would be like, "Nah, we, we want you on piano." Uh, you know, we like you more on piano, like, but you never have heard me play organ. You know, so right. so it's just the whole thing. And so I think during a what's call it record. Uh, record we did live in Houston. I can't think of the name, but I switched over and just started playing organ in Rhodes. So last, you know, 20, 20 some years, now I guess I'm an organ player now. It's all yeah. people have ever seen. So It's a lot, it's, it's in a lot of your bios, the organ. Yeah. 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 And also, I guess since you started on it, people assume that that's your, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, your yeah, baby. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk to you about on schizophrenia. There's uh, there's amazing string things. Are those samples that those you play? Are all samples. God, where do you so, get those samples, man? They're well, fucking I had, amazing. I had uh, I've reached out to all of the great string arrangers because I've always had a love for strings. Yeah, that uh, shows seriously. I, like I you're playing and the like. The, Gil Goldstein was always. I love, you know, well, I heard that B- Michael Brecker Wide Angles record. I don't know that record. Oh, you got to listen to that record. Okay. It's the, the orchestration is crazy. Okay. It's like amazing. So I'm like, you know, man, I, w- I want to do, I want to get into this string thing, but I don't know anything. I've never done that before. So, you know, I I, I had a Claire Fisher do work on the Kirk, some of the Kirk Franklin records. Uh-huh. Of course, I wasn't gonna be able to afford him, right? Because I had no budget. I was, 
I did this whole schizophrenia record with my own money, favors. A lot of people showed up. A lot of people didn't. So, so every all the string people I was calling, nah, oh, man, it's gonna be three thousand, four thousand, five thousand for this. You know, I'm like for a quartet and arrangement. So my friend Phil Lassiter, he was like, hey man, you know, you need to meet my guy, my friend of mine. He's from Dusseldorf, Germany. His name is uh, Simon Simonovsky. Right. Simon was is amazing keyboard player, singer, but he's a gifted programmer. He programs the shit out of strings. And you know, I heard a, a few things that he did for for Phil. I'm like, well, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you know, you know. But I just wanted the real thing. Yeah. You know? No, I know. You know it's- so. So after calling everybody, and I was just like, you know what? I called Simon and said, hey, man, can, can you make these damn strings sound real? And he was like, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, man. He said, like, give me a chance. I was like, well, man, I want to feature you doing that, doing your thing. So he, I sent him like four or five different songs. Every song came back. I sent him another one. Killing. I said, man, just do your thing. My record is all about art. It's not about my record is not about me. It's about everybody. Right. So just everybody. I want to feature everybody. Show my show is show. You know, when I do a show, I want it to be the same way. You know, I want everybody in the band to have their moment. You know, um, uh, it's all about. Uh, so that's basically what I did with with Simon. You know, so I just wanted to uh, wanted to want him to do his thing and feature him. Yeah. You know, say man, go crazy, because I'm all about pushing music forward. I'm not trying to do no shit that somebody else's has done. You know, yeah. or if if they've done it, it's been done maybe and forgotten about. Yeah. You know, keeping the spirit of creation there. Creation, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I don't want to make the same so. That's you know, Simonovsky, Dusseldorf, Germany. So how much, like, how much of the record did you like? You said you started it in '97. I started writing in '97. Okay. But I started recording '99. Okay, so 20 years before it yeah. came out. Mm-hmm. When did you finish mixing it? Uh, about two years ago. I guess about 2018 in September. Because I had to. I had to put it out. I had to give it to the record company around in December, so they could put it out. Have three months. They need three months to market it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, how did you did you start it on tape? Yeah, I started on analog tape. Okay. So a lot of stuff I had like uh, I had. Um, I started a lot of it when I was working with Kirk Franklin. I was cutting a record in 1999 with this group he was producing. We were staying out in, yeah, we were, we were pretty much living in L.A. In a studio that the record company had a studio. So when we wasn't working with Kirk, I'd be in the Studio B doing tracks. They had a Euphonics console, had a couple of studers up in there. Yeah. And we dumped it to tape, 15 Ips, yeah. Dolby SR, 
and put it back to Pro Tools. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah. How, yeah. how much did you work on it, though, like, say, in the last couple of years of it? Did you well, still? I, I, never, I always wrote. Okay. And as technology came, I would just do. And beginning at my house, I had four D88s. Okay. So I had 32 tracks worth of uh, digital tape. Right. So I eventually got all of that stuff I was working on to Pro Tools. So now in the early 2000s, when I'm on the road, I have my inbox, my Mac. If I'm in a hotel room at a festival, Hiram Bullock, what's up, man? What's up, dog? What you doing? Hey, Bobby, what's up, man? Say, hey, man, I need you to play a solo on this thing. Can, can you come to my room? Sure, fuck yeah. Hey, man, you don't have to learn the song. Just come, just come, just, just come jack off on it. Just yeah, just come play. be Hiram. Yeah, just just be Hiram. Yeah, or you know, Dean Brown, or just whoever. I'd keep. A, I would travel with a microphone. With a, a microphone, I travel with everything I needed. So if I caught anybody, and plus my 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 one of my best friends, Keith Anderson, saxophonist, he was always on the gig with me with Marcus Miller uh-huh. and Patches. So I would get them to do stuff. Yeah. So before a tour, I'd make sure I'd have like ten or twelve songs just ready for just, and then I just get people just play on it. Yeah. You know, just meet anybody. Hey, man, love your work. Man, can you play on something? Come yeah, to my yeah. Room. I'll come to your room. Yeah. That's so cool, man. That's, that's, that's how I got the record done because I had no budget. Sounds like no you budget. did. I mean, it really does. Well, I had a lot, a lot of people, you know, you know I, I pretty much spent my, the money I had on my mixing, my mastering. I had used the basic Bob Brockman who... Been, been a friend of mine for 30 years. Uh, he mixed all of the Puffy, uh, oh, wow. all of the all of the Mary J. Blige. That's the, why it sounds so good. The Biggie Small stuff back in the... And then there was uh, uh, Nick Hard, who works with with uh, Snarky Puppy. He does uh-huh. all Snarky Puppy. And I love him because he gets those the weird shit yeah you know, he makes stuff he takes your stuff and makes it sound like something else and then there's another friend of mine who we used to work with Kirk Franklin together and ended up we worked with Timbaland together and he worked with Timbaland for 20 about 20 years wow his name is Chris Godby and Chris Godby is a he's a beast yeah so I used those guys as well as some other guys friend of mine a friend of mine i grew up with named rod stigger he uh he mixed a couple of them another guy in dallas but it's a collaborative i take songs and pretty much figure out what what kind of sound i want and i pretty much put the engineer with the sound that you know right you know at their skill level you know. right and then i got dave mcnair to, to master oh yeah Air McNair. Yeah. I love that dude. Yeah, he's 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 that cat. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. As a, a great guy, very he talented. Live here too. Too, right? Yeah, he lived in Austin yeah. for a while and then he ended up working at Sterling for a while mastering. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 
James Robinson. I don't know. I'm just cheering you on. Bye, Chandra. Um, tell me a little bit about Snarky Puppy. What's going on right now? Absolutely nothing. Well, right, right, right. right. But, but uh, Snarky Puppy is, uh, I think Mike has some, some different plans that I think he's going to, you know, Mike is always pushing everything forward. Right. You know, I've learned a lot from from Mike, from being a side man to seeing really how it's done, how it should be done as a band. You know, because I've been blessed as a musician. You know, I've never really had to struggle. You know, I've, you know, since I was 16 years old, I've been touring. I've been playing. I've, I've stayed in five-star hotels. You know, I've been in limousines playing with all these artists that I've played with. From, I'm not bragging. I'm just no, saying no. I've been blessed. Yeah. From playing with Marcus Miller to Roy Hargrove, Tower Power, to uh, everybody. You know, Philip Phillips, these pop gigs. Uh, Nelly Furtado. Ne- yeah, Nelly Furtado. Yeah. But but you but but with Snarky Puppy, when I started traveling with them. They traveling in a seventeen passenger van, and it's eighteen, nineteen people in the van, <laughs> <laughs> and no hotels, no, you you don't know where you're gonna wash your ass, and I wasn't used to that. Yeah, but realistically, that's you no, know, that's that's how you do it. Yeah, that's you go and kill it, and then you you go back. So I had to learn that because I never. You started off too high class. Yeah, I started. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, to the point. I'm, I'm sitting there asking, and, you know, after the gig, I'm like, "So where are we staying at?" And some chicks go, "Oh, y'all can stay at my house." I'm like, "What? I don't even know you." So I've slept in strange places. Yeah, you know, but it was a lesson that I needed. Yeah, and so you know, even with my career. Now I see how it's done. But, you know, Mike, Mike League and Snarky Puppy, those the core of the seven, four mus- uh, the musicians taught me a lesson. Yeah. You know, and I teach that lesson. I teach that lesson all the time because that's how, you, how it's done. Because 30 years ago, you had a record company that took care of all the bills. Yeah. Stanley Clark told me, say, he said, man, I feel sorry for guys like you. He said, man, when me and Chick Korea and we were doing them records, he said, they would give us so much money. You know. Yeah. You know, like like thousands, half thousand dollars just in 1973 to just cut a cut a record. Yeah. Know? So now as musicians, we have to come up with our own money to record a record. Yeah. Our generation missed out on, on the big money stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I work I work with this uh nonprofit called the Austin Music Foundation. Wow. And it provides like uh no charge education, both musical and business wise, to, to young musicians, right? And um there was someone that came in and we were having a meeting and they were talking about, Oh yeah, this guy got signed to Atlantic and out of curiosity Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't out of curiosity. He said, you know, and he got his advance 
$17,000. And I was like, that's what you get? Shit, you could borrow that kind of money from a bank if you wanted to. Well, that's what it is. I mean, that's what it, yeah. yeah, but like back in the day, I mean, even my band, when we got signed to Electra was 98 and we got like 100 grand. But that was at the low end because I remember guys that had gotten signed like ten years before were like, "That's all you got, Jesus!" Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you get a, a, and then you have to figure out how much you you were going to use to to spend on the record and all that money. So if, I guess like if you got a million dollars, yeah, on a pop deal, then you you might spend five hundred thousand out cutting the record, right? And then the rest of five thousand you put in your pocket. Yeah. You know? Or however you you and your manager decide to do it. Right. But those days are gone now. Yeah. Yeah. Long gone. They will never be back. Uh is that your studio, the pictures in the in your on your website? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Got a sweet DX seven right in the middle of one of those pictures. Absolutely. I was like, I knew he had one of those. That's where I started. <laughs> that was my first my dad bought that for me in nineteen eighty seven. DX7, I bought. I had to have that because Michael Brooks had that from Commission. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then I got the M, the Korg M1, and yeah, that came 19, out in '87, right? 1988. Yeah. 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 And that was my axe. Yeah. For for a minute, till it got stolen. Oh. Where? At a church. Oh. <laughs> That's Somebody, dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was at a church. And I had it in my truck. It was locked. Somebody broke the window, stole it. That sucks. I'm sorry. Yeah. Those things were cool. It's so funny. The DX7 and the and the M1 have that thing where like all the records that came out like from winter of '84 all the way up until '88 when the when the Korg M1 came out. All those sounds, like, <laughs> it just, music yeah. sounded like the DX7 for Absolutely, a few years. because that's what it was from 84. Yeah. That was what everybody used. I think the DX7 is the most bought synthesizer in history. I think. I'm not sure. But I think because in that period, 1983, 84, everybody on stage had, each keyboard player had four or five of them. Yeah. Whatever pop artist. Right, right. Yeah, I remember seeing that on like Solid Gold and yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, everybody, even the bass player would have. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> they would they would layer them. Right. It's first. I think it was the first FM synthesizer. I think it was. Yeah. But it was very important in my life. Yeah. Yeah. The clavinet is uh, like that's where you achieve your uh, level of of uh, of of. Uh, like chaos that Hendrix would get. You right. you definitely proved it at the end playing yeah. playing the uh, the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. But throughout the whole show, like I was like, oh, that's where he goes for the insanity. Yeah, yeah. The clavinet gives me a lot of options. Um, well, options were is like for organ. It's like an organ or or the Moog. Uh, and because I have the the whammy whammy bar, yeah, I can manipulate a lot, a lot of notes. Yeah, you know, and I love the blues, so I play the blues all the time. I play them because I have them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, are you married? Yeah. 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 I have a wife and I have 
three kids. Yeah. Yeah. They grew up with you going out and playing all the time. Oh yeah. How's the last uh, eight months been? Well, it has been really been a blessing. Uh, this pandemic, pandemic has been. Uh, it has been good for me. Even though I love touring, I really like being at home. Sure. I really, really like being at home. Uh, you know, I always dreaded not being at home, watching my daughter grow up. So now, the last part of the last school year, you know, well, I mean, during this pandemic, you know, I've been able to be at home and be with her. Mm-hmm. I hate that she has to go through her senior year in high school like this, but I guess it's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, it's been a, <laughs> it's been a mind blowing year. Yeah, I mean everything from you can possibly think of. Everything fires, hurricanes. Like I don't know how many people have died. Yeah. Like my wife, my wife. We lost my wife's grandmother. Great uh, grand, yeah, grandmother, and her stepfather within two or three week period. We buried them in the same three within a month. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, okay, and they were very close, and you know, in fact, her grandmother lived with us for twelve, thirteen years to help. Because when we first got married, we had our daughter. So she moved in the house to help take a, take care of her. Sure. When she moved out, when she got older, you know, where she couldn't, she started getting dementia. So we lost her. And then during the same time, her mother's husband was was uh, struggling with cancer. So three weeks later, we, we had to bury him. I'm sorry. That's yeah, but you know, I guess God knows best. Yeah, okay, I'm uh, I'm Cuban. I, my parents were born in Cuba. I'm like first generation American, really? even though I look like some dude from Iowa named Steve. <laughs> uh, like Spanish is my first language and everything. Really? And in the in the Latin culture as well as in Black culture, there's multi generational homes. Like you, you grow up with your grandma there. Or your grandfather, or oh, yeah. you know, there there's something about the beauty of of the circle of life, where it seems like in general, American culture, as soon as things start getting weird, it's like oh, put them somewhere where we don't have to see this shit right now. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's yeah. frightening and kind of depressing. Yeah, but you know, for, for black culture, that I mean, for black culture, that's that's that it is what it is. Same with yeah, same with us. Because, you know, in, 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 our, in our culture, we, a lot of times, you live in poverty. Yeah. So, a lot of times, grandmama didn't have a job where where she made a lot of money. And when she retired, she didn't have a retirement. Right. So, a lot of times, the burden, grandmama might have to move in with mother or daughter. And it's just kind of. Everybody has kind of becomes a family type of situation. Yeah, 
or the the middle generation starts having kids and the grandma moves in to help with yeah, that absolutely. and everybody it's a cooperative family absolutely. but i love it though yeah me too me too that's one it. of the things i think is really frightening because there's this sort of like fear of death in america and i think it's just simply because we don't deal with it yeah like as soon as seriously as soon as your your mom or something starts getting a little loopy it's like oh put her in a place and we'll go visit her nah. when we can and yeah no yeah, that just should be when everybody in the house should take turns taking care of mama that's right that's right my aunt just she moved took, in with my she, grandma who's 97 she, she took care of you yeah she, exactly she you know she cleaned your diapers and so now you know at an age later on it's hard it is but you know it's life it's life that's what it is yeah it's what it is I feel like I could sit here and talk to you all night. You are you you're you're you even surpassed how cool I thought you might be. Oh, well, thanks. You you really are like just a a beautiful person and and digging into your music for the last few days and just like a, you have a huge fan. Oh, well, thanks. Man. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, also great work on the St. Vincent record. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that's you doing all the Moog stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Moog and Mellotron and Yeah. Clavinet. Yeah, we use. Yeah, she's bad. She is bad. Yeah. She's bad. Yeah. Well, Bobby, this has been great talking to you. Um, I'll talk about your website and everything. People should get out there. And uh, I know you're doing some live streams. Are you doing this regular from your yard with the guys, well, or is no, that, that just every that once in a while? Was a guy, a friend of mine named Matthew Kuzman. Uh huh. He always comes. There's a club in Dallas called the Freeman Jazz Cafe. Uh-huh. It's kind of where everybody's playing now. Uh-huh. It's like the cool place where everybody's playing. So he comes, hangs out, and he grabs like the band. Say, hey, you want on Fridays and Sundays? I'm I'm doing, you know, uh, come play in my front yard. And for my neighbors, they all social distance, and people that come sit in this front yard, and the neighbors. Come sit in their yard and they watch. Yeah. Everything's cool. They they give an offering and they do all that kind of thing. And yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much for taking the time after your show and everything, sitting down. You're yawning. Absolutely. But, but I really, really have appreciated the whole night watching you rehearse, hearing you play, and getting to sit down and talk to you has been really amazing. Oh, thanks, man. Dude, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, creating bebop right in your face. Ugly beauty right on the stage, the loneliest monk, innovator rights away. From backstage at the Amani Room in Smithville, Texas, right after the Love and Liberation show on Labor Day, with the amazing Bobby Sparks. What a great conversation, man. What an amazing, amazing musician. What an amazing night of music and love. You know? What an amazing night all around. I really enjoyed talking to Bobby. You can find his record, Schizophrenia, The Yang Project, wherever it is you stream or download your music, and you can find him at bobbysparks.com. I want to thank uh, James Robinson for having me. I really had a blast doing this uh, doing this event, hosting it, getting to see, getting to you know be part of the night. It was really magical, and, and I really, really appreciate it. So, uh, gang, when you're out there checking out bobbysparks.com, don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you find podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, be it Spotify, be it <laughs> anywhere, basically. 
new shows all the time. Thanks a lot for listening to the show. Get out there and find Bobby Sparks. Get out there and listen to his record, Schizophrenia, The Yang Project, available now. And once again, thank you and love to my dear friend James Robinson, Brandon Temple, Bobby Sparks, Chandra Washington, everyone that was there that night at the Amani Room in Smithville, Texas. Look out for it, man. It's going to be great. I think that I think they're going to do more stuff there. And it was really a beautiful, beautiful night of just love and magic. Here's some more music from Bobby Sparks. Find him at bobbysparks.com. Have a great weekend, gang. Let's get down. in your hand.